Welcome to the Back Nine Report, presented by eDraft.com. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Backman Report presented by eDraft.com. This is a special edition, our highly anticipated annual countdown of the top stories of golf in 2016. Remember, we go live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time to check in on the world of golf, to bring you the latest news, insights, analysis, interviews, recaps, previews. Hey, we cover anything and everything golf. My name is Carlos Torres, and every week, I'm alongside my host, Fred Alvader, but this week, since this is our countdown, an annual countdown, you know, it has to be there, our European guru, our friend, Kieran Clark, and I'm going to bring him first. Kieran, hi, how are you today? Well, good evening, Carlos and Fred. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, as always, obviously, to come on to talk about the, the year in golf. It's been quite a momentous year in so many different ways, obviously, some great championships and great victories, some great stories, some sad stories as well. There's been an awful lot to talk about, so I'm very excited. We're here, obviously, counting down towards the end of the year now. Christmas is always is almost here, but you know what? I couldn't think of a better way to spend the festive time of year than with you two guys talking golf, so let's go and do it. Let's do it. Let's do it, and we're, we're pleased that you're here with us once more, one more time. And Fred, hi. How are you today? Hey, guys. Uh, sorry, I got in here a little bit late. Um, this is... Uh, this uh, blog talk wouldn't let me talk to you guys for some reason. So, hey, uh, I am extremely happy to be here on December 13th for our final Back Nine Report of 2016. What a year it has been for golf. And we're going to count down the 10 biggest golf stories of the year. Plus, what could be better? we got a friend from Bonnie Old Scotland. Kieran's going to be here and. Oh, this ought to be a lot of fun. I'm so excited. Let's go. You know, I figure out why Block Talk Radio didn't want you to talk. It's just that you have 10 pages to talk, and we don't have that much time. That's, I have 10 pages. I think, Carlos, as we can probably hear from Fred there, I, I don't think Fred's taking his medication for this evening yet, so he's taking his pills to calm down a little bit. He's a bit excited, I think. I am. I'm excited. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And like we were talking, you know, we're going to have our top 10, but we also have some honorable mentions that we're going to be talking about. And uh, as usual, we have our guest to talk about his honorable mentions first. And Kieran, how about your honorable mentions that unfortunately didn't make our countdown, but they are as important as the others? Well, they certainly are for Jim Furyk. Uh who, of course, made a bit of history this year on the PGA Tour. You know, Jim Furyk's one of those players who we almost forget just how good he is. You know, he's not, let's just put it, he's not one of the fashionable players. He's not the most exciting player to watch, or he doesn't dress exuberantly. He's bald. He doesn't have much on the face of it going for him. But he's a tremendous golfer, and when he's at his best, he's one of the most consistent and efficient players in the game. And we saw evidence of that this year on a number of occasions, particularly having come back from wrist surgery 
last year. He missed the first half of the season, really missed the Masters. But then he came back to the US Open, a former winner there. He finished second behind Dustin Johnson at that event. Then, of course, at the Travelers Championship in the late summer, he made a bit of history for himself on the PGA Tour, where we always felt for years that you know, breaking 60 is always been kind of a number in golfers' heads. That's kind of the, the, the holy grail to try and shoot 59. You know, Al Guyberger did it back in 1977, was the first player on the PGA Tour to do it. Gary Player actually did it three years before that at the Brazil Open in 1974. But it's happened a few times since then. Chip Beck has done it, David Duval, Paul Goyder, Stuart Appleby, and, of course, Jim Furyk himself three years ago at the BMW Championship. But 58 was that kind of unattainable number, a number no one had achieved just yet on the PGA Tour. And Jim Furyk at the Travelers Championship went out and did it for himself. A low-scoring event, a low-scoring course, but... He took advantage of the conditions and produced a really stunning runner golf, hitting all 18 greens in regulation on the par 70, 12 under par round. He actually had a chance to shoot 57 on the last hole, but had to settle for a 58. Uh, he had a remarkable run, buried the second hole, eagled the third, buried the fourth. They went through a, a barrage of seven birdies from the sixth through to the 11th, and he buried number 16 to get to the 12 under par on the round, and he parred the last two holes to end up shooting 58. And uh, so he made a bit of history. He's the first player in the TJ Tour history to actually shoot two rounds under 60. And he's now Mr. 58. And uh, he joked afterwards that he had uh, over 300 pitchers at home with, with number 59 on. So he has to get them replaced now and get some 58s. But it was a tremendous round. And again, coming, back from, coming from a guy who had just come back from injury, it was even more impressive. A guy who, you know, he's 46 years old now. He's one of the older players on the Tour but he still remains one of the best. And going forward, you know, Furyk's one of those guys who he's so consistent, he's so efficient, his all-round game is very good. He will remain a factor going forward. And, uh, you know, it was a, a great achievement for him and something with the highlight of his, his season. And also a guy who, on the other end of the spectrum, in terms of age and experience, is Hideki Matsuyama. But perhaps and he's more of, been more of a story of the past sort of two or three months where his form has been stunning. Of course, he began the year very well, beating Ricky Fowler in a playoff at Phoenix to win that event second PGA Tour winner having won at the Memorial uh, two years ago but then having had a little bit of quiet period in the middle of the season he had a couple of good major finishes at the Masters and then again at the PGA Championship but it was really in the fall he really came into his own this year with four wins in five events including a seven shot victory at the WGC HSBC Champions in China which was a huge victory he had the first Japanese player to win uh, WGC Obviously, that's kind of viewed as being the, the level just below the major championships. And it's really to defeat a strong field like that and to be so dominant illustrated just what an incredible player he really is. And we've seen his potential now for years now. We've targeted him as being a, a player who could become one of the best in the world. And I think now we're seeing evidence of that going forward where perhaps 2017 could be the year of Hideki Matsuyama. And that would be huge for golf. Uh, you know, Obviously, he's a huge star in Japan, which has got a huge golf market. The Olympic Games is going to Japan in four years' time, of course, in Tokyo. How huge would that be if Matsuyama was to arrive there as a major champion, as maybe even world number one? Of course, Jason Day, the world number one, has had a relatively absent, quiet season comparatively. You know, obviously, second half of the year being mostly absent. So Matsuyama could be the player to come back and can come in and fill that void and become one of the top two or three players in the world. He's certainly got the potential to do that. And uh, going in 2017, I think we can certainly say that Matsuyama will be one of the most fancied players to finally get a major championship and to become the first player from Japan to win a major championship. That would be extremely significant for the game of golf. And Fred, you know, as we move into your little section now, I think with Matsuyama, Fred, you know, I think you have to agree that you know, he's a player with the status he has in Japan and that, that marketplace in Asia. 
he's someone who could potentially become, if he wins majors, if he becomes world number one, he could be almost a defining player of the coming years. Oh, for sure, Kieran. Um, you know, they're just waiting in Asia for a, an Asian player to, to become big. I mean, look at KJ, KJ Choi and uh, uh, Y uh, Yang when they won. I mean, they were, they were revered over there. And look at the reception NB Park gets when she goes back with the gold medal from the Olympics to Korea. So, yeah, they're just yearning for a champion, uh, and whether it's Japan, Korea, China – and with the new China tour, these kids are playing better and better. So, yeah. Hey, uh, let me talk just a minute about a couple things that, uh, that didn't quite make the cut. Um, Donald Trump, I don't know if you knew this, Kim, but we had an election here. Uh, we elected a new president. And I, know, I know over in Scotland you don't really pay much attention to those kind of things. No, not at all. Um, he's just a golf course owner over there, so no big deal. Um, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, Donald won the election – um, and all of golf's ruling bodies distanced themselves from Donald Trump during his presidential campaign. You know, what happens now that he's won the election? You know, he was one of golf's biggest contributors during the 10 years golf struggled to find sponsors and anyone willing to invest in golf. So, you know, Donald put a lot of time, effort in. He's dropped a bunch of money into golf properties all over the United States, in Scotland, all around the world, and, uh, you know, he's been a big factor. And then all of a sudden, boom, he makes some comments in his presidential election run, and everybody runs away from him. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see what happens going down the road. I know we have the uh, U.S. Women's Open next year at Trump Bedminster. That's all set. That's still going to go forward. Uh, there's still some other things up in the air that they're talking about, but uh, uh, that should be really a lot of fun to watch. The other thing <clears> – <throat> And this probably could have had a topic all by itself was Phil Mickelson's year. He came away really with nothing except the Ryder Cup win, but he had a fantastic year, made a lot of money. Um, you know, he, it, it was his rather ungentlemanly statements at the conclusion of the 2014 Ryder Cup loss at Glen Eagles that led to the formation of the U.S. Ryder Cup Committee. And with the win this year at Hazeltine, um, it, it appears his ideas were validated. He also competed in one of the best final rounds in major championship history, narrowly losing to Henrik Stenson at the Open Championship. Plus, his singles match with Sergio Garcia in the Ryder Cup featured 19 birdies between the two men and ended in a draw. Phil was pretty disappointed with that with that tie. He really wanted to win. But what a fantastic match to watch. And, and that was right on the heels of the Rory McIlroy and Patrick Reed match. Uh, so, But Phil had a great year. Uh, you can't take anything away from it. Um, it was one of his best years, even though he came away really with, with no major titles. Um, the news coming out for Phil right now is he had a hernia surgery a couple weeks ago and just had to have a second hernia surgery, so he's going to be out for a while. doesn't look like he's going to be starting a year uh, at the beginning of the season in January, February, maybe March or April before he gets back in the swing of things. But Phil had a great year, um, and, um, you know, if he can get back and get healthy, uh, we look for him to have another good year, even at the age of 46 next year, guys. He, he still has – he still has game to to contend, and for sure, 
I mean, I just remember that last pot in the in that magical round that he had that the ball just swept to the right just as it was approaching the hole and it was like all the air went out and everybody like, Oh, why did it happen? But he said it that's the curse. It doesn't happen, you know, in the majors. So but yeah, I have to agree he got validated for all that he said and and did in the past Ryder Cup and hey the U.S. won it, and he had a great year. He had a great match, and you're going to talk more about that later on. Uh, but I have to talk about two things. One is that this year was the fir- uh, it was a f- the year of the first time major winners. Uh, you know, when Jimmy Walker took his first major over Jason Day, capped only the third season since 1969, and fifth ever with four major, first-time major winners. The last time that happened was in 2011 when Charles Schwartzel, Roy McIlroy, Darren Clark, and Keegan Bradley all won their first. Before that, it was Mike Weir, Jim Furyk, Ben Curtis, and Sean Michiel in 2003. You know, those first-time hitters, uh, timing, timers were not were no joke either. Three of, of the four were ranked inside the top 20 in the world when they won, and two were inside the top 10. Walker is the lone golfer who was somewhat outside of an outsider. <clears throat> you know, the men's golf talent is deep, and now the past five majors winners have proven it. Jason Day took his first major the last year as well with the PGA Championship, but came within a couple of strokes of defending the title. Then Danny Willett, Hendrick Stenson, Dustin Johnson, and Jimmy Walker consecutively. That means that the big three of Jason Day, Jordan Spieth, and Rory McIlroy went majorless in the two, in 2016. That won't be the last time that happens if uh, if this ma- this pool of players uh, remains that way that way. And you know, well, the, when the 48th ranked player coming into a major after missing the cut at three of the past four wins uh, and wins. Wins it by one over the best player in the world. I'm sorry, I'm having some cough problems that I'm trying to avoid. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's I am trying to rush through it. In the world, you know, with, in the be, with the best play, in the best field in major history. Yeah, I would say that anybody can win, and can't wait to see what the majors bring uh, in 2017. Also, you know, in the the year in the LPGA. Uh, it was Adia Yutanagar's rebound, you know, with two her best five titles. Yutanagar won the Rolex Player of the of the Year Award, the race to the CME Globe, $1 million jackpot, and the LPGA money-winning title. title. She also won the Heather Farr Award for Perseverance, coming back from shoulder surgery in 2013 and also slumped that saw her miss 10 consecutive cuts a year ago. She became the first player in history to win three consecutive starts as her first LPGA titles. She did that in May after collapsing in April with the final round lead at the A&A Inspiration. And one thing that did happen is now that rivalry maybe with Lydia Ko, who with five victories worldwide, she kept a stranglehold in the Rolex World number one rankings from the year start to finish. She also won her second major, the A&A Inspiration, and in the, the LPGA season at top the world rankings for a 76-week the last 57 in a row. Also, we have to mention Inby Park, who just, uh, Fred mentioned. You know, she battled through an injured left thumb to qualify for the LPGA Hall of Fame at the KPMG Women's PGA Championship in June. The pain was always there, and it led Park to shut down her game until amazing the world with her Olympic return two months later when she won gold in Rio de Janeiro. 
Also worth mentioning is the youth movement. You know, the women's game has been getting younger for some time now, but it's never been this young. The average age of this year's LPGA winners was 22.3 years old. Uh, wow. And the average age of the top 10 in the Rolex Women's World Rankings at season end is 22.8 years old. So, you know, it's incredible. Charlie Hall uh, joined the youthful winners mix, claiming the season-ending CME Group uh, Tour Championship at 20. We can mention also the Asian dominance, you know, specifically from South Korea, the Seiri Pak influence steadily grown uh, on her home country. Ten of the top 12 players in the Rolex Women's World Rankings are Asian-born. 31 of the 34 events were won by uh, from Asian descent. Also, the Olympic gold, silver, and bronze medals were swept by Asian-born players, which also add to America's woes because the Americans won only two LPGA titles this year, their fewest in the 67-year history of the tour. Lexi Thompson's victory at the Honda LPGA Thailand uh, was the only by other American other than uh, Brittany, Lang, Brittany Lang, who won the with the U.S. Women's Open at Carnival, uh, you know, the Americans also endure a slide in the Rolex World Rankings with Thompson, the only American left on the top tens. Brooke Henderson had a major breakthrough, and Inge Sean, she moved to join a pair of legends there because she achieved a rare uh, pair of feats linking her name to Stacey Pack and Nancy Lopez. Inge Sean, you know, remember she introduced herself to with the win at the U.S. Women's Open at Lancaster last year. But this year, she followed up that success in a big way, winning the Avian Championship to join PAC as the only players to claim majors as their first two LPGAs and also won the Vera Trophy, becoming the first rookie to do so since Nancy Lopez. So, uh, Kieran, what do you think about these two things this that I just talked about? Yeah, I think obviously with the major champions this year, it was interesting. It's obviously, you mentioned the, the list in 2003 with Weir, Furyk, and uh, Curtis and McKeel. This year is a little bit more stellar than that one. You know, back then, that was a very strange year for the majors. You know, a lot of very unheralded players were winning the big events back in the early days of the last decade. But obviously two guys this year particularly, and Dustin Johnson and Henrik Stenson, who were guys who we had long fancied as being arguably the two of the best players not to have actually won a major championship, you know, two arguably on, on their day two of the best players in the world and obviously they illustrated that and proved that now have a title, a major title to back that up uh, this year and obviously Danny Wilt winning the Masters was obviously dramatic with Jordan Spieth collapsing and obviously Willett being a young English guy winning again was a different kind of winner and obviously Jimmy Walker a guy who steadily improved over the years and uh, really is, is a, a reward for perseverance down the years and he's become a very accomplished player over the past two or three seasons. Uh, but I must quickly go back to one uh, of Fred's comments earlier on about Donald Trump. And uh, obviously Donald Trump, as Fred mentioned, has contributed much to the game of golf over the years. But I'm going to put one question out there. Do you think Donald Trump's going to open up any new golf courses in Russia by chance? <laughs> well, I hear they're pretty close, so, you know, you never know. <laughs> hey, Fred, any guy. final comments? Any final comments, Fred, before we go on now to well, the top ten? Yeah, just real quickly, uh, in the, on the women's side of winning the majors, you had before the majors, you know, won by, you know, the top young women in the game, Lydia, Brooke, Aria, and NG Chun. I mean, what uh, what a group going forward to watch on the LPGA Tour. 
Uh, Willett winning the Masters, you know, I, Willett hasn't shown me much. He really played well uh, for two or three years building up to the Masters, but he's really getting in kind of on a victory lap the rest of this year here, and, and so he's got to get back to work to get back top of his game. Uh, he pretty much gave away the race to Dubai, and he had it wrapped up. Uh, yeah, Stenson played well, but Willett played really bad uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, Henrik, I'm going to talk about his year, so I'm not going to get into that. DJ, uh, I'm going to talk about that some more, too. Uh, DJ winning the U.S. Open to me, was that was the big story of the year about how he did it. Jimmy Walker finally getting a major, one of the best players on tour, without a doubt. I put it all together that week, so... Um, yeah, it was just a, it was it was a great year uh, all the way around, Carlos. And, and the majors were no different, you know, with the Olympics and the Ryder Cup on top of it. Uh, just a, just an unbelievable. Uh, so we we have so much to talk about. And let's start to it. But first, let's take a short break before we go deep into our top ten stories. You don't want to miss it. We're gonna start right away. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back. In the meantime, don't forget to visit www.edraft.com for analysis, breaking news, and more. Also, remember to follow us on Twitter at edraftsports and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash edraftsports. Now, back to the show. And now we're going to start revealing to you one by one the top 10 stories of the 2016 year in golf. And Fred, you have the first one, the top, the 10th uh, story of 2016 in golf. So what is it? Yeah, coming in at number 10, Carlos, uh, we're going to talk about the two tours, the two main tours uh, for the men, the PGA Tour and the European Tour. And specifically, we're going to talk about the commissioners. Effective at midnight, December 31st, Tim Fincham will end his reign as the commissioner of the PGA Tour. Jay Monahan has been serving as his deputy commissioner for the past two years and will ascend to the commissioner's seat. For 22 years, Tim Fincham oversaw the greatest area of growth to the PGA Tour in its history. Dean Beeman, who had held the PGA Tour commissioner's job prior to Fincham, had set in place a foundation for growth and Fincham added to it. Thus, the players of the tour will reap the benefits for many years to come. Yes, Fincham had the great fortune of becoming commissioner just before Tiger Woods entered the professional golf scene. Tiger drew fans, brought more eyeballs to golf tournaments than ever before. Corporate America wanted to be involved with Tiger, and Fincham seized the opportunity to add events and increase purses. Along the way, he didn't forget the players that make the PGA Tour successful. He has increased the player's retirement fund exponentially. Once a player reaches the minimum number of cuts made to be fully vested, the retirement plan, the rewards are just gigantic. Total prize money in 1994 when Fincham took over as commissioner was $52.4 million with 40 official tournaments. Fincham leads a schedule of 43 tournaments, with prize money of over $300 million, plus the four majors and the lucrative FedEx Cup bonus pool and playoffs makes that number even bigger. The $55 million FedEx Cup was conceived and negotiated during Fincham's tenure. 
In 2009, he negotiated favorable television contracts that will run through 2021, although they are in the process of renegotiating those as we speak. He was able to do this even while Woods was away from the tour with injury and rehab. Plus, the economy was in a severe downturn at the time. With more sponsors willing to pony up $6 million or more to fund PGA Tour events, Fincham and the PGA Tour added the wraparound schedule. Seven events are played after the FedEx Cup in October and November, which offer over $40 million in prize money. Fincham leaves behind a PGA Tour better funded, if not more popular, it is extremely more lucrative for tour members than when he took over from Dean Beeman. For the players, the massive increase in the retirement funding from tour operations is a piece of Fincham's legacy that many times gets overlooked, but not by tour members. Tim Fincham was never a ball of fire. He was deliberate, concise, measured in, his reply, measured in his replies with the media, but a solid administrator who knew his constituency and managed his staff and the players to maximize the profits for the tour and the players. He will go down as one of the best sports management administrators of all time in any sport. Finch's counterpart on the European tour, Keith Pelley, took over as commissioner in August of 2015 and spent his first full season on the European tour in 2016. Working with a tour that struggles to compete on a world stage and find sponsors willing to fund purses for less than stellar fields, while the best players from Europe head to the U.S. for the vastly more lucrative PGA Tour, it's a daunting task. Pelly has proven he's up to it, however, and like P.T. Barnum, he hasn't met a marketing idea he doesn't like. He has tried several new and innovative ideas this year, and we are sure he will continue to strive to find ways to grow the tour in the future. His latest concept will vastly change the European tour as quick as next year and will make the best European players rethink their playing opportunities. Through a deal reached with Rolex, the Rolex series will encompass a seven-tournament stretch where each tournament has a minimum of $7 million purse, which is comparable to the best tournaments on the PGA Tour. The Rolex series includes the Irish Open, Scottish Open, BMW Championship, and Italian Open. The Turkish Airlines Open, Nedbank Golf Challenge, and the World Tour Championship currently make up the European Tour's playoffs are also part of the series. The old saying for professional golfers is, if you pay them, they will come. If Pelle can prove to European corporations that $7 million purses will keep the best players at home and draw better television ratings, he may just keep the European Tour relevant, guys. Well, we'll see about that. But I think, you know, obviously today, actually, the PGA, European Tour, rather, actually released its schedule for next year. Uh, what is most concerning about that schedule is actually the fact there are still some empty spaces on it. There are some events, particularly in the spring, that haven't yet been confirmed. But overall, it's a 48-event schedule. And as you say, Fred, there are seven uh, uh, Rolex Series events on the schedule now. And obviously, they've been upgraded. Obviously, bigger prize funds. And that's certainly a positive thing going forward. Um, but obviously with Pelly, he has his innovations. He had this nighttime golfing. He did it at the British Masters. He's having this somewhat confusing uh, event he's doing in Australia in February. So uh, these seem more like gimmicks to me, game show formats, and uh, I'm not sure it's going to make too much of a difference. But then 
in the end, if it works, it works, time will tell. Because really, in the end, European Tour has been in something of a malaise for well over a decade now. So anything different and innovative, I guess, is uh, something to welcome. But that said, innovation doesn't necessarily guarantee success. So we'll see how he gets on. However, one thing we can be sure of is that his uh, eyewear will be particularly colourful, as it has been so far. So he has that going for him. And I suppose one thing you could say, to contrast Mr. Pelly and uh, Mr. Fincham, mind you, it's not much of a comparison really, but Mr. Fin- Mr. Fincham, you know, I-, I will miss his you know, uplifting charisma that he's always displayed throughout the years. And um, Pelly certainly hasn't beaten in that regard. Mind you, a block of granite would probably beat Tim Fincham in terms of personality. However, certainly did a very good job down the years, and he can certainly retire with his legacy intact going forward. But the European Tour, obviously, is an ongoing battle. But by going to number nine now on our list of the year of our top ten stories, and really it's, it's not really a surprise to talk about this, really, because it's one of those things in life that's almost guaranteed. It's like taxes or the weather being bad in Glasgow and Scotland. But it's Bernard Langer continuing his dominance, really, of the Champions Tour as he progresses towards 60. And obviously most players in the Champions Tour, when they turn 50, they're fresh, they're enjoying a new challenge, and they come onto the Tour and they, you know, they succeed brightly. They win a lot of events in the first couple of years, pick up a few majors, and then after that they sort of dwindle away a little bit and just enjoy the money. But Bernard Langer, you know, the ultimate competitor that he is, and the, the great athlete that he is, and just a, a tremendous player to this day, he is still a dominant figure as he approaches 60. You know, now 59, he won his third consecutive Charles Schwab Cup on the Champions Tour this year. He won four times in 2016, including two majors at the Tradition and the Senior Players Championship. And, of course, this year as well, he also, you know, he was actually in contention at the Masters, where, of course, he's won twice before in 1995 and 1993, or 1985, rather, 1993. He was within two shots of the lead going into the final day at the age of 58, he fell back in the end and finished tied for 24th, but it was a tremendous effort for a guy at that age on that long a golf course, that big slog of a golf course that Augusta National now is. So he's someone who he continues to defy expectations and defy the odds by still being a, a fantastic player at this age. And, of course, as I said earlier, what, what makes him particularly impressive is all the new players. Every single year there's a new batch of players coming on fresh and hungry onto the Champions Tour. We've had the likes of Colin Montgomery come on a few years ago, Kenny Perry, Fred Couples, and now you've got the likes of John Daly, Davis Love, Vijay Singh. But still, despite all that, Bernard Langer is still the number one guy. And that's a testament to his professionalism and obviously his ability and his determination to continue to be a top player. And, uh, and this, this all came despite, of course, the much publicised and scrutinised anchoring ban coming into play this year, which many had really questioned whether he, Langer could still compete given he used an anchored putter now for many years, having had struggles with the yips throughout his career. But, as he has done throughout his career, he's shown great resilience and he's found another way to do it, uh, although you couldn't tell much difference. And I think ultimately Bernard has quite intelligently illustrated the real absurdity of the rule change anyway by changing his style almost unrecognisably. But it is different and you know, it works for him. So, But it, it points out again just how ridiculous the rule change was in the first place. And going into next year, you know, Bernard, uh, the, the Senior Open Championship, which he won three years ago at Royal Porthcawl in Wales, the event will return to that venue next season, that wonderful Lynx course. Uh, and he won at that event three years ago by 13 shots and what I thought was one of the best performances by anybody on any tour of that year. It was an exhibition of ball striking and course strategy. You know, he's meticulous the way he plays. Obviously, he plays very slowly, but he puts everything together. And to watch Bernard Langer close up in a golf tournament is fascinating because there's nobody who's more thorough with his preparation it's like watching a guy, a surgeon almost, just 
immaculate, you know, intelligently going through every single shot on the course, picking out every avenue he can go in, every single thing he does is mapped out to perfection. He's a real strategist, and he has a skill to execute it. Has a somewhat uh, visually ungainly swing. His follow-throughs are obviously sometimes all over the place, but like Arnold Palmer back in the day, the shots often go the right way. And uh, Langer is a phenomenon, and as he turns 60 next year, you know, we can expect him to, to add to his 29 wins in the Champions Tour. He probably will come up short, ultimately, of Hale Irwin's record of 45, but I think ultimately the Champions Tour now is a far stronger uh, outfit than it was back in Hale Irwin's day in the late 90s. So I think Barry Langer really, for me, is arguably the best senior player in the history of golf. And uh, if he was to perhaps get some more wins next year and our couple of majors, maybe even pop up the Masters again, then he'll underline that even further. But, you know, Carlos, you know, Langer's obviously been a phenomenon now for many years. You know, 30, 40 years in the Tour now, continuing to play golf to the highest level. He doesn't even look that much different than what he did 30 years ago. He's still tremendously fit. His dress sense is still tremendously awful. But he's a great player, and he's a gentleman. And, uh, Carlos, I think he'll succeed again next year. <laughs> you know, 25 years after Langer missed the six-footer for Barr on the 18th hole in his Ryder Cup match with Hill Irwin, to give the U.S. a 14 and a half to 13 and a half victory, yeah. they find out themselves at another intersection in golf history, and it might not be as memorable as the epic war by the shore, but it's becoming, you know, a growing part of the legacies of they, of them. Uh, and after his four tour wins this year, and he's now, like you mentioned, tied with Lee Torino for second place all time with 24. Irwin's total is uh, 45 now. Like now, he's looking far in the distance, but you know he has already admitted that Irwin's all-time record is a motivation. Uh, so I remember Irwin lost his competitive desire after becoming a granddad and winning three times since early 60s. But Langer doesn't seem like that's going to happen to him. He already said that once uh, him and Vicky become empty nesters, you know they will go all at it. So the only questions that I would have. For the still lean and fit Langer, though, is if he, if he could hold off Father Time long enough to get it. You know, setbacks like that minor knee injury this year cost him a playoff event and might become more frequent as he gets older. Uh, but one thing, though, is that, you know, that confidence from having successfully addressed his spotting issue, his spotting average this year was actually one, one thousandth of a point better than in 2015. And if he wins four times a year, he can catch Erwin before Bill Mickelson enters the tour in four years. Then it'll be game over. So anyway, uh, let me talk about a little bit now about uh, Nike. You know, this year meant that Nike gave it more than a decade before finally getting out of the equipment game, opting to instead focus on other parts of its booming business. Hold on a second, though. We're not talking about golf, right? Not yet anyway. But anyway, let's not forget that Nike in 2007 gave up on its lumping ice hockey division known as Nike Bauer. The decision came 13 years after the world's largest sporting goods maker dove into hockey by buying a Canadian company that makes Bauer skates and other equipment. Nike followed a similar path this year stunning many within the golf industry by pulling the plug on its equipment division. The company ended production of clubs, balls, and bags, decision that at the time left sponsorship deals with tour stars like Tiger Woods, Roy McIlroy, and Mitchell Wee in the limbo. The company said going forward it will instead focus on its strengths, 
within the industry, shoes and apparel. Ultimately, it's the right decision. Uh, the move was a blow, unfortunately, for the hundreds of employees who lost jobs as a result, an unfortunate byproduct of the decision that both Woods and McElroy lamented on social media. Some observers, especially in the media, have suggested that Nike's pullout is yet another sign of golf demise. They've tried to tie it to Woods' absence or statistics that participation is down and courses uh, closures are up without providing appropriate and important context. Yes, the number of players in the game today is indeed down from the sports pinnacle when Woods' popularity introduced a huge chunk of people to golf and more courses have indeed closed than opened since then as well. But that's a natural correction in the industry after the Tiger-induced building boom. But rounds are up in the U.S. this year overall, a fact largely attributable to good weather and youth participation has increased. Woods game has unquestionably been in decline. Look no further than he spotted the 650 in the official World Golf Rankings. But Nike's move away from hard goods isn't directly connected to the fall of Woods, who hasn't played at all this year until he played on the Hero World Challenge. And, uh, you know, as the 14-time majors, champion seeks to recover now and try to get back again into the winning ways, uh, the sport of golf is still on hold for that. But look, Nike knows success, and Phil Knight's company is the world's largest sporting goods maker for a reason, and accustomed to dominating whatever part of the industry it dwells in. Uh, but that never really happened since Nike Golf was established in 1998 and first started launching clubs in 2002. They spent big bucks in, on its endorsement deals with Tiger Woods and McElroy, who came aboard in 2013. But those hundreds of millions of, of dollars didn't necessarily translate into a bigger chunk of the pie to at least within the cutthroat equipment industry. Even when Tiger's dominance was at its height, uh, Nike never grabbed more than about 10% share, always overshadowed by the more established brands like TaylorMade and Callaway. Nike's uh, golf equipment sales for the most recent fiscal year dropped to $706 million from $769 million a year ago, which is an 2.2% decline. The reality in the golf industry is that it's not only hard to break into, but also difficult to maintain your position. So, you know, take TaylorMade, for for example, the company, after two straight years of declining net sales and profits, earlier this year said it would reduce the number of new products introduced to the market while shifting to longer product cycles. Even so, Adidas has sought buyers for much of its golf side, including TaylorMade and Adams Club. You know, here and to me, ultimately, Nike isn't dumping golf. It's just getting out of a division. I mean, Fred, I'm sorry. Uh, it's uh, ultimately just getting out of a division that it wasn't able to dominate or even crack the top three. The fact that it made such a huge news is that it sponsored Tiger Woods, Roy McIlroy, and Michelle Wee, and they had to go elsewhere for clubs involved. Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably pretty accurate, uh, Carlos. You know, we talked with several golf industry experts throughout the year on the show, and everyone said that this is simply a fact <laughs> of a normal business cycle uh, in consolidation. And I'm sure we've not seen the last of these types of moves in the golf industry, and we can look for more next year. 
Coming in at uh, number seven of 2016 best or biggest golf stories, Dustin Johnson not only had to send off the field at the U.S. Open at Oakmont in June, he had to beat the rules officials as well. You both know how I feel about the use of super slow-motion cameras and reviewing a shot from various angles, then using that video to affect play or assess penalties after the fact at golf events. I hate it. The usage of video review is completely overdone in every sport. They are making baseball, football, and golf nearly unwatchable. Plus, the officials are afraid to make a call, blow a whistle, or stick their neck out. It's not within the confines of the spirit of any game and needs to be drastically altered. That being said, when Johnson's golf ball was deemed to have moved a dimple, even though he had not addressed it on the seventh green, the USGA video police took it upon themselves to inject their brand of wisdom into the proceedings. But they had to confer, discuss, and rewatch it a couple hundred times. Johnson was not notified of the pending one-shot penalty for over seven holes. That's over one and a half hours after the alleged penalty had occurred. In spite of arguments from Johnson's playing partner, Lee Westwood, who was responsible to protect the, the entire field and the rules official following the group there, that no penalty had occurred, the USGA, in their infinite wisdom, told Dustin on the 14th tee that a penalty may have occurred. I stress, may have occurred. This is while he's still playing. They couldn't even tell him straight on the tee, and they clearly had made up their mind. You could see it in the interview with Fox Sports. The only good thing to come out of this was that the Fox camera guys followed Dustin and his wife Paulina as they climbed up the stairs of the Oakmont Clubhouse with Paulina's thong visible through the tight, clingy white dress. But I'm sure no one noticed. Um, we and Kieran, I know you saw that. I know you did. We must. I, say I didn't here, actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> we must say here that. Johnson, who appeared to be in the zone that week at Oakmont, did not let the penny penalty disrupt his brilliant play. He did bogey the 14th after the discussion on the tee box, but then finished par, par, par birdie to claim the three-shot win over Jim Furyk, Shane Lowry, and Scott Piercy. This whole mess was inexcusable, and the USGA's response has been to change the rule for the future, hopefully to avoid this situation. Stimp readings approaching 15 on greens that were meant to be at nine, and ridiculous course setups like the travesty at Chambers Bay in 2015 will continue to create problems for USJ until they wise up. With all of this commotion, it's sometimes lost that Dustin Johnson exercised his demons of past major championship failures and performed magnificently on one of the most difficult golf courses in the world. The sins of Pebble Beach and Whistling Straits we're forgiven, and he's now a major champion. Now, if we can just get past his issues with sordid affairs and rumored drug use, uh, we can pronounce him a worthy champion, Kieran. Well, indeed. But, yes, I think you're quite right there, particularly the last point on the, the core setups. In the end, you'll, these situations would not happen or certainly be less likely to happen if the core setups weren't quite so severe as they are nowadays. It's, and it's not just the U.S. Open, indeed. 
we have incidents in other events as well where the greens now are so fast. Like you say, when Jack Nicholas won the US Open there back you know, 50 years ago, the, the, the greens were stimping at, as you say, nine. Now they're you know, 15, 16, and it's silly. And the game's been taken right to the edge by the USGA and indeed the RNA because they've allowed technology and the golf ball to go so far, and their way to counteract that is to make the golf courses even more severe than what they were before. And when you do that, you have unintended consequences. And this particular incident was one of those consequences. And unfortunately, you know, in the end, it, it was a, a mark on the event. But you know, credit to Dustin Johnson, he came through there and he produced you know, a tremendous victory. And in the end, given the circumstances, it was probably the best victory of the year. And um, you know, certainly you know, the USGA made themselves a story, but Dustin Johnson thankfully took the headlines back from them. And uh, hopefully now going forward, we'll see lessons learned and uh, changes will happen. Not just the rule changes, but also set up changes will happen in the future as well. But um, I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. But yes, coming at number six on our list of the year, and uh, perhaps, and you mentioned about the Polina Gretzky thing, I'm sure this man noticed that uh, when he was watching on television. Uh, but Tiger Woods, he, um, uh, coming at number six is perhaps surprising given his uh, incredible status in the game over the past 20 years, but maybe a sign of the times that he's maybe moving down the ladder ever so slightly. That said, you wouldn't have believed that a couple of weeks ago at the Hero Challenge when he made his return to golf. And when we last saw Tiger Woods play competitively, it was actually during the... He was battling for a tie for 10th in the end, a credible finish uh, last August at the uh, Wyndham Championship, which was won by Davis Love III. Um, and that year had actually been beset with problems from injury start of the year and also issues on the golf course as well, including dismal performances in the U.S. Open, Open Championship and PGA Championships, and with some really uncharacteristic issues, particularly around the greens of his short game, that some had attributed to a form of yips and stage fright. Uh, they were certainly startling, particularly at Phoenix, where he was having a disaster around the greens, which was really quite shocking to watch, given some of the amazing shots that Tiger has produced around the greens throughout the years. Uh, but Tiger's injury problems, of course, have been long-standing and go back many years. You can go back to his first surgery in 2002 on his knee, and obviously many since then. Obviously, the most famous ones being in 2008 after the U.S. Open victory, which of course remains his last and 14th major championship triumph. And in 2014, he underwent microdiscectomy surgery on his back to correct a nerve problem that had plagued him for some time. Tiger was, of course, at world number one in 2013 to come back to form and won five times that season. But since then, injury problems had really hampered his progress. Um, and, of course, he would have a, a similar procedure again last September and then a follow-up operation in October. So Tiger was really out of, the, out of the curve completely, out of the game. We had no indication as to when he was going to come back at all. And when he emerged last year at the Hero Challenge as host of the event, he didn't seem overly optimistic that his career would return in any meaningful, meaningful fashion. Of course, he remarked that anything from this point would be gravy, as he put it. It was not an optimistic uh, thing at all. And uh, he'd make appearances in 2016 at events, promoting his new golf course in Texas, also appearing in clinics for his foundation. And reports on the quality of his game at these events and also at practice runs at home and also his physical state were mixed, to say the least. For some people, he was, they were outrageously positive. He was shooting incredibly low scores and he was walking around brilliantly. And other people were saying he was practically a cripple and couldn't do anything, and apart from play video games at night. And that's all he did. So you know, the reports on his game and his life really went from the outrageously positive to the absolutely negative. And in the end, Tiger is so secretive that it leads to that, you know, uh, you know, unknown factor to him, and at least to that kind of debate as to how he actually is doing. But when, when he, um, however, he did announce having missed all the major championships, uh, he did play a successful role as vice captain, of course, for the United States Red Cup team, 
working closely with Patrick Reed and George Street as part of his little pod in that group. And his influence there was clearly positive, and he has since accepted the role for next year's President's Cup. However, when unveiling his new business ventures uh, this autumn under the TGR brand, many had wondered whether Tiger was actually establishing the next chapter of his life and career, following in the footsteps of business like Arnold Palmer has done or Jack Nichols has done or even Greg Norman has done over the years. However, maybe slightly surprisingly, he announced he would make a return to the game at the Safeway Classic, the start of the PGA Tours, or used to the PGA Tours Fall Series, first event of the 2016-2017 wraparound season, as they call it now. But he surprisingly bowed out of that event just days before the tournament began, saying he didn't feel ready to compete, which was a really startling and rare admission to make for a 14-time major champion. He didn't feel like he was ready. And he also missed the Turkish Open in the aftermath of that as well. However, he did make his return in the end, and he committed to it this time at the Hero World Challenge, his event at Albany in the Bahamas. And, uh, you know, having dominated the game and over the years with three different golf swings, Tiger has had this remarkable ability to bounce back and to achieve seemingly improbable things against the odds. And uh, having, having lost some weight and muscle, he returned looking leaner and uh, had a better rhythm to his golf swing as well, still working with Chris Como, his instructor. And really the fact he emerged pain-free was the obvious positive, and there were obvious flashes of the old Tiger Woods, particularly in that second round. And he actually led the field in birdies of 25. However, you know, there were a number of destructive shots off the tee, especially that caused double bogeys and really hampered his score and some finish well down the small field. Uh, and also a few edgy chips around the greens as well also were raised some alarm bells. You know, rust was certainly going to be obvious, and in the end, any player coming back from... 16 months away from the game is going to be rusty, but obviously not every other player is Tiger Woods, and the scrutiny that comes with that obviously is more intense than anybody else. But it was certainly enough to suggest that he has a chance of coming back in a relatively meaningful fashion, albeit it is too early to tell whether his return will you know, make it, you know, whether he will come back and be a winner again at the highest level. That is far too early to be, to be sure. He, of course, today actually announced he's going to play next year at the Riviera event, what used to be the Alley Open, is now called the... Uh, Actually, got the Genesis Open is now is a new Genesis name for that Open, event. So he's going to be playing at Riviera next year. Uh, that may be his first event of the season, but also we'd expect him to potentially play at Torrey Pines as well in February. So we'll see how that goes down. But Tiger is coming back next season, and we'll see how he gets on. But you know, with Tiger, the debate's always you know does golf need him? And it comes back to what Carl was talking about earlier about Nike and so on, about the business side of golf and the, the money making side of it. And his influence is, still, is certainly still there, and we saw that obviously in the televised viewing figures from the Hero Challenge with the Golf Channel reporting record numbers for the last quarter of, of this year, of, of any year, really, this time of year, and the highest rating since the opening round of the Open Championship in July at Royal <coughs> Swim. And, and the first round numbers were up by 190% on last year, so he obviously remains a huge draw, coming with that immense profile in history that, as Fred said earlier, has brought so many eyes to golf more than anybody else has in history. But the question is whether that would be sustained over time if his game was to remain mediocre to poor. Obviously, with a novelty factor to having Tiger back after so long, there was an interest there, which perhaps you wouldn't have had otherwise. And, uh, but would that be positive for the game if Tiger came back next year and didn't really compete? He was there, he missed cuts, he shot in the high 70s all the time, he didn't do anything. He would distract from the talents of the, of the many great young players emerging in the game now. He'd perhaps become nothing more than a sideshow. Although the TV guys would certainly be delighted to have him there, it's good for ratings, but for the long-term future of the professional game, would a struggling Tiger Woods overshadowing the young players of today be a positive thing going forward? I'm not so sure. However, a t 
Tiger Woods that would return competitive at the highest level, competing in majors, competing to win PGA Tour events. You know, that would be a huge shot of adrenaline into the arm of, of golf. But time will tell as to whether that's going to happen in the years to come. But certainly it was good to see him back. He seemed to enjoy the experience. He was, he was looking happy in the golf course. We saw some really good shots from him, obviously, particularly in that second round. But there's still signs there that he has a long, long way to go if he wants to be competitive with the likes of Jordan Spieth and Jason Day, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, those guys, Tiger's still a long way from that level. But and going into next year particularly, uh, Carlos, it's going to be a, a real fascinating story. It's going to be really ultimately, you know, the main story really, can Tiger come back, going into the Masters, he can back there, can compete there again. So obviously there's all these young guys coming up now, you know, Rory's there, Hideki Matsuyama, we spoke about earlier, is coming up as well, obviously. So Tiger's a long way from those guys, but can he bridge that gap into next year? And that'll be, you know, it was a, that would be one of the main narratives going into next season, Carlos. Don't even get me started on Hideki Matsuyama. It's Tiger Woods. So <laughs> let me let me refocus here. I might have to hit the mute button a couple of weeks ago. I you know he, he yeah. shut up. Curious? <laughs> it's Tiger Woods. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know Tiger. He cited Jim Fury. You know he's 46. But and you mentioned he talked about him shooting a 58 in August. He said that, it, you know, it's possible. I'm just going to have to find a different way of doing it. But he also mentioned standing in his way is that new guard that has filled the vacuum at the top created by his absence. There are six players, you know, in, this, uh, in the 20s right now led by Jordan Spieth uh, since Wood's last competitive appearance. The six have combined for 14 victories worldwide. And, uh, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be tough for him. Uh, his goal, he said, uh, that week was the same as it ever was to win. But given where he was that a year before, it could probably be argued that he pulled off a victory by just making it to his start time. And uh, can't wait to see him his return at Riviera. Uh, like he said uh, today, that uh, that was the place where all it started for him. Of course, uh, now the Genesis Open is the version of the tournament, and uh, it's going to benefit his foundation, so he, he has to be there at Pacific Palisades. But, you know, it was long ago, and I mentioned this last week, that he was practicing in the back garden when he hit the nerve in his back. He laid on the ground unable to move, and the cell phone was out of reach. Then his daughter Sam comes out and wonder why his daddy was laying on the ground. You know, it's great to see that he's back. He brought some nerves. Great that he left his pain at home, but will that happen again? I don't know. But hopefully it was great to see him at least great for one week and see him back and some flashbacks of what he can really be. Well, now we are at the half point off our countdown. I'm going to take a short, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'm going to go for number five. So don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Back Nine Report presented by eDraft.com. We'll be right back. Don't forget to check out our co-hosts on Twitter by clicking their names in the episode description. Now, back to the show.
And we're back, and now it's time for number five, and that is Royce McElroy's return to prominence. And he finally went back to be a contending force by the end of the year. He ended up the year with three wins, finished three times third, and from fourth to tenth, he finished eight times, Mr. Cott, three times in 22 events. If you didn't count, that's 14 out of 22 times in the top ten. He recorded two top ten finishes and missed two cuts in this year's majors, and the 27-year-old labeled his putting as pathetic after making an early exit from the PGA Championship for the first time in his career. So after trying to find a solution on his own, he eventually conceded he was being stubborn. It took him a while, but he finally did, and enlisted the help of putting expert Phil Kenyon he went on to win the Deutsche Bank Championship, the Tour Championship, and overall Felix Cup title with that little added bonus of, you know, the cash change of $10 million that came with it. After that, he played in key matches in the Ryder Cup, including forming a formidable tandem with uprising star Thomas Peters and being part of a super key singles match with MVP in the Ryder Cup, Patrick Reed, on that Sunday. On which, after he was speaking with Golf Channel afterwards, he reflected and said that he ran out of steam, but well, I think Patrick ran all over him. He had a chance to do the double and win his fourth race to Dubai in five years, but he decided to skip the Turkish Airlines due to security concerns, and also practically he conceded that Hendrik Stenson and Danny Willett had better years and deserved the title more than he did. He didn't win it, but... He has certainly returned to prominence with a strong finish in those two final tournaments and has set a short-term goal of more major glory and a long-term objective of surpassing Colin Montgomery's record number of moneyless titles, which as of now stands at eight. He also has seen his stock risen by becoming one of the coolest figures in sports after having one heck of a fall. He displayed a softer side of the course in a series of recent appearances. The latest was on the Late Late Toy Show, Toy Show, where a kid was playing a video game while rattling off all of McElroy's accomplishments. He was clearly enamored by McElroy, and the world's number two-ranked player paid him a special visit. Once McElroy strolled onto the stage, the kid lost his wits a bit and forgot some of the accomplishment he had just so confidently told the crowd. McEnroy generously gave him two signed copies of the game and tickets to the next year's Irish Open. Also, you might remember this, and Fred, you put it all there out. Uh, he took part in a hilarious interview with a young boy who didn't <laughs> hold anything back. McElroy was asked about past relationships, Tiger Woods, his impending golf club change, and other various things. Instead of getting upset or, or snotty, he answered the questions respectfully and played along quite well. We understand that athletes will normally be on their best behavior in the national spotlight, but these appearances are things that McElroy doesn't have to do. He has always been a patient and kind person to the media, and it clearly resonates over to his daily life. Fred, with Tiger Woods back in the fall, told we may soon get to see maybe if he gets back on the good side. That once promised Woods McElroy rivalry renewed, all fans would be salivating at that possibility, but if not, McElroy can at least keep us great with giving us heartwarming moments. Yeah, Rory had a pretty good year. He didn't win here in the U.S., but 
he had won on the European tour. Uh, but, you know, he did have those putting woes for a couple months, and they, they were severe. I mean, it was it was ugly at times to watch him play. But he was able to fight through it, uh, sought some advice, sought some coaching, and, and got it fixed. And he just kicked it into that higher gear that he has for the FedEx Cup playoffs, and he won twice and, and got the big check. So, uh, great to see him return to form. Uh, don't like to watch him when he's struggling. Uh, he gets down on himself. Is just not not nearly as much fun. He's an exciting player. Uh, with him in the mix with Jason Day and Jordan Spieth and, and uh, the, the other young guys, it's just it, it's a lot of fun. And and Carlos, I I absolutely loved that interview that that young guy Billy the kid did with, with Rory there in Dubai. I thought that was just outstanding. That was really well done. Um, coming in uh, at number four, we're kind of coming in here to the back nine. Number four, Henrik Stenson has had some success. Henrik Stenson has had some success on both the PGA Tour and the European Tour in the past but nothing like the run of great play he put together in 2016. He won a major, the Open Championship, plus a silver medal at the Olympics and finished off the year by winning the race to Dubai. On the PGA Tour, in 14 starts, he earned over $3 million with a win, a runner-up, a third-place finish, plus seven top tens. On the European Tour, he played in 15 events, registered 11 top 10s, seven of those were top fives, and two were wins. He, of course, he won the Open, and he added a victory at the BMW Championship, I'm sorry, BMW International, as well as the Race to Dubai, and was recently named European Tour Player of the Year. He finished the year off by passing Masters champion Danny Willett as a leader in the Race to Dubai, courtesy to his runner-up finish at the WGC HSBC Champions in China, where he was runner-up to Hideki Matsuyama, Carlos. He then added top ten finishes in the Nedback Golf Challenge, hosted by Gary Player, and the DP World Tour Championship. He earned his second race to the buy crown in four years, which he won earlier in 2013. Along the way... He, along with Phil Mickelson, contested a battle for the Claret Jug that will go down in history as one of the greatest of all time. Phil opened the first two rounds at Royal Troon with a 63-69, one shot better than Stenson's 68-65, but both men had separated themselves from the field by eight shots, and it was a two-man race on the weekend. They continued their stellar play. When one would gain an advantage, the other would make up some birdies and come roaring back. The best part was that neither man blinked. There were no loose shots, no mental lapses, just outstanding shot-making and a very high level of golf artistry. Mickelson did nothing wrong. His third-round 70 left him just a single shot behind Stenson, who posted a 68. Paired together for the final round, Royal Troon provided the perfect canvas on which to paint this classic opus. Phil began the day with a birdie. At the first, to draw even with Henrik. Phil added an eagle at four after Stenson had run off three. I'm sorry. Yeah, after Stenson had run off three consecutive birdies at two, three, and four, they were back to even. 
both birdied number six, but Stenson added one more birdie at number nine to tie Phil with a front nine, 32, to regain his one-shot lead heading to the back nine. Stenson birdied 10, but gave it right back with bogey at 11. Phil didn't make any bogeys, but could only manage birdies at number 10 and number 16 on the back side. Henrik kicked it into gear, closed the deal with three consecutive birdies at 14, 15, 16, threw in one more for good measure at 18 for a back nine of 31 to win by three shots over Phil Mickelson. Phil finished at minus 17 under par, fired a final round 65, which would have been good enough to win the clear jug on any other day. He finished 11 shots ahead of the third-place finisher, J.B. Holmes. But Stenson's Sunday 63 left him at 20 under par, gave him his first major championship title, and made him the champion golfer of the year. Even Jack Nicklaus said the level of play exhibited by Mickelson and Stenson on the weekend at Troon was better than he and Watson's famous 1977 duel with son at Turnberry. Stenson also achieved a milestone by winning the silver medal for Sweden at the Rio Olympics in August. He battled Justin Rose, but in the end, Rose's final round, 67, was just good enough to collect the, the gold medal, two shots ahead of Stenson. Henrik had nothing to be ashamed of in Rio and put a masterful display of shot-making and surgical precision from the tees. Stenson even impressed himself. He said of his year, it certainly has been the best season of my career, and to now be voted the European Tour Golfer of the Year for a second time is a fantastic way to bring the curtain down on it. To win the Claret Jug, a silver medal at the Olympics, the race to Dubai, and now this means 216 was a very special year for me, and I am very proud of what I've achieved. It was truly a magical year for Henrik Stenson. Will he follow up in 2017? It's doubtful but he will still be a force and can fire up his phenomenal play at any time. Kieran? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's actually a great film or series to be made out of Henrik Stenson's career. It's been a remarkable story from the very beginning where he came onto the tour as a very promising youngster, but then he lost his game entirely about 15 years ago and was quite, you know, hit some of the worst shots anyone's ever seen, really. He missed fairways by 100 yards. Then he went to Pete Cowan, he sorted out his swing, and he became a very accomplished player, of course, having success, winning the race to Dubai back a few years ago and so on. But then he went through the, the Alan Stanford Ponzi crisis where he lost a significant amount of money in an embezzlement scam uh, by Alan Stanford, who is now uh, spending the rest of his life, in, uh, a lifetime after that, indeed, in jail. So in a sense, of course, he lost his game again, but then he got it back. And in the last few years, he's become arguably the best ball striker in golf consistently. Um, you know, when, when he's at his best, you watch you watch the guys in the range, and he is the most impressive guy to watch. And there's a, there's a different kind of sound comes off his ball striking, and the, the, the way that the ball flies through the air, the penetration of it is tremendous to watch. And uh, he's one of the guys that makes you stop and pay attention. And um, and, he ha- and he has overcome an awful lot to do that. And uh, various ups and downs in his career, and to get that win, to get that major championship, the, the val- really. The, the victory, the title that his talent validated uh, was, was very satisfying. And to do it in you know, what was the best Open Championship that I've been around to see, uh, the most exciting, arguably the, the highest, the, be- the best duel we've seen in the major championship over the past couple of decades, was, was something to watch. It was something to savor. You know, Phil Mickelson you know, played incredibly, and Stenson played one of the best final rounds of all time. It was uh, a great showpiece. And then really it was golf at its very best. In the end, for me, it was a case of 
so often in major championships, particularly the US Open, the USGA and different organisers seem to think that the the, the, the the higher the scoring, the better it is. The harder, the better. The more restrictive the setup is, the better the tournament's going to be. Well, that Open Championship at Royal Troon illustrated that really what makes people tune in and watch, what makes golf the best and exciting is watching great players do great things, make birdies, make eagles, play great shots. We see it at the Masters historically, and we saw it at the Open this year. That's what makes people love the game, and it was a great exhibition for golf. And uh, Stenson was a great champion, one of the most likable guys in the tour, one of the funniest guys in the tour, and it was great to see him finally get a major championship at the age of 40, of course. And he's a very young-looking 40-year-old, I have to say. So many guys in the tour look quite old for their age, but Henrik's one of those guys that actually looks quite good. So he obviously uses the face cream quite a lot and looks after himself, so you know, credit to him for that as well. I must quickly go, must quickly go back to uh, Roy McIlroy's interview with Billy. And in case you don't realise, young Billy is actually a professional actor, and he's presently on the Netflix series The Crown, playing a very young Prince Charles. So you can see uh, young Billy on a television set near you. He's a very talented young man, and uh, his interviews are certainly very entertaining. I didn't know that. I, we but, watched yeah. that show. My, my wife is hooked on that show. We watched that. I'll have to watch for that now. Thank you. There you go. Billy. He plays a young Prince Charles. Yep, that's that same kid. Yep. Hmm. <laughs> there you go. You learn something right. new. See, that's why, that's why you have me on this oh, show. Oh, that's teach you oh, things. We, exactly. We need you, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm here. But anyway, moving on to number three on our list, and it could have been number one, really, but uh, again, an illustration of how a, a momentous year it has been for golf, but was the Ryder Cup. And I, I will try and keep my comments a little more concise than I did last time, but I was thinking really that the listeners every week have to listen to Fred, so they might appreciate a, a different voice occasionally. So that's why <laughs> But uh, on to the Ryder Cup. Of course, following defeat at uh, Glen Eagles and the unsuccessful captaincy of uh, the legendary Tom Watson, uh, the PGA of America, really led by Philip Mickelson, of course, created what was somewhat ludicrously nicknamed the Task Force to reinvent the American approach to the Ryder Cup, which has been really widely dominated by Europe since the 1980s. And creating a more inclusive process, really essentially adopting what the Europeans have done for years now, Losing captain in 2012 at Medina, Davis Law III was restored to the role as captain with a posse of assistant captains, uh, Tom Lehman, Steve Stricker, Jim Furyk, Tiger Woods, and indeed at the last minute, Bubba Watson, but he was there really to carry the, the bags, I think. He, of course, missed out on playing in the event, despite being ranked fifth in the world, which is a bit strange. But uh, again, a very strong background team there, a very inclusive sort of setup, very similar to what Paul Eisinger did in 2008 at Valhalla. We had different pods, different sections creating a more inclusive uh, team environment, really, rather than bringing individuals together, reinforce the idea these guys are a team, they're for each other, they're together, and fitting different personalities together uh, suited that way. And obviously it was successful. Uh, but the team was very strong as well, of course, a very strong lineup, a good mixture of experience and youth, a lot of passionate young guys, Patch Reed, Jordan Spieth, they brought that hunger to the team. I think that was certainly infectious. And uh, they faced a largely inexperienced European team led by Darren Clark that, of course, included six rookies. However, going into the Ryder Cup, given Europe's success, it was viewed as being quite a, a close-to-call match. Um, it certainly could have gone either way. But on the day one, on the fourth and the first session of the tournament, it was a real startling beginning when the U.S. crushed the Europeans 4-0 in the first session. And that just completely changed the whole dynamic of the event. Suddenly, the Europeans were in a a position that almost seemed insurmountable at that point. Could they somehow get back uh, in charge? Or at that point, the United States really had one hand on the trophy. At that early stage, about a four-point advantage was 
uh, significant. Uh, but then, of course, Europeans, you know, typically, as you would have expected, they fought back. They came back in the afternoon session, the four balls, winning 3-1 there, closing the gap at two points. So, obviously, the Saturday session was pivotal. But then, of course, the Europeans won Saturday forces to get it within a point. Suddenly, the Americans were losing momentum, losing that advantage they had accrued in the first session. And really, Europeans at that point were perhaps the favourites. They had all the everything going in their favour. However, in the afternoon four balls, all the matches were really close and really tight. But in the final couple of hours, the Americans swung it round in their favour with three points going to them, and that gave them a three-point lead going into the final day. A smaller lead, of course, than what they had at Medina four years previously, which, of course, they lost in that miraculous comeback from Europe. But the Americans are still in a very strong position. But going into the final day where, of course, 12 points are available, the Ryder Cup is one of those, what makes it so interesting really is the fact that no matter how big a lead one team has over the other, there's still a chance for the other team to get back into it. And there's also a chance, and also a moment or an hour or two in the Ryder Cup final day that you actually think that a comeback is possible. And that was certainly the case early on. We saw Roy McIlroy and Patrick Reed, really the two main talisman of both teams going head-to-head in that first match, and it was truly epic. You know, some of the... The fist pumps and the shots and the atmosphere was incredible, particularly on the eighth hole where Rory holed that 80-foot putt and went absolutely crazy. And then, of course, Patrick Reed followed him in. It was one of the great Ryder Cup moments and one that we'll probably remember as being the indelible moment from that particular match. And it was something else. Then, of course, Reed won that pivotal first match, set a tone in the Americans' favour, edged that extra point ahead, and then, of course, it all swung around in Europe's favour because Europe obviously went top-heavy, they went with Stenson, he won his match. Thomas Peters, who was really the most impressive player on the European side, he won his match over J.B. Holmes. But then the Americans took charge. Farley won his match. Sergio and Phil, in that unbelievable match, as Fred mentioned earlier, went for a half. But then Ryan Moore won. He got the pivotal point in the end to win the Red Cup for America over Lee Weston, who struggled all week. Win for Snedeker, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepper, and Zach Johnson gave the Americans their biggest victory margin since 1981, 17-11. It was a decisive victory in the end. Of course, during the event itself, it didn't feel that. It felt closer than that, I think, overall. And that was perhaps, for me, the biggest takeaway from the event overall was just the, the real standard of play. It was incredible. The golf course was set up for birdies, and the players delivered, and it was exciting to watch. Much like the Open Championship at Troon, you know, when you get these guys a chance to make birdies and eagles, it is thrilling to watch. And Ryder Cup, really, this year was golf at its best. And, um, and a, it's a fantastic win for the Americans. Obviously, I'm pleased for Davis Love, who is one of the most respected players in the game, to get him get his redemption from 2012 is obviously something nice to see. And for the event, of course, it's good to have a, the cup to change hands again. It's good to have it going both ways. It makes it competitive, makes it compelling, makes it a real proper competition, and it certainly increases the anticipation going into the golf national in two years' time. But of course, coming away from the event, there were many questions, several of Darren Clark's decisions, most notably breaking up Cabrera, Bello and Garcia, and sending an out-of-form pairing of Willett and West on Saturday afternoon. But really, every decision he made has to be viewed through the prism of the opening session. His hands were tied after the opening session, constantly having to play catch-up. And by Saturday evening, the likes of Stenson and Rose were looking tired, and the U.S. took those three valuable points to edge ahead. You know, so I think in the end, that, that first session was the defining session, really, and that set the tone for the week, and it gave the Americans a massive advantage. But overall... It was certainly a thrilling contest, and it was, you know, it, when you consider how good the, the Open Championship was, the Ryder Cup was right up there alongside it, and uh, you know, it's still the most watched event in the game, it's still the most kind of event that transcends more than any other, I think, overall, internationally, certainly, 
And, uh, you know, Carlos, you know, obviously golf had another big occasion this year in the Olympic Games that you're going to talk about, but the Ryder Cup was certainly one of the highlights of the year. And, uh, again, obviously it's, again, the thing that made match play is perhaps the best format and most exciting format, but, of course, at the Olympic Games cast, we didn't see a match play, we saw a regular stroke play event, and that, but that was still exciting. And I thank God for that because that's no place for it, for it. But that's for the Ryder Cup and special events like that. But, you know, talking about the Ryder Cup, this time there was no choking, no grabbing defeat from the jaws of victory, no folding under the intense uh, international pressure of the Ryder Cup, acting and playing like, dare we say it, European rivals. I mean, the, the United States uh, Ryder Cup golfers not only figure out how to win the most important team competition in men's golf, they also figure out how to dominate it. Who knew that the Americans could close out the Ryder Cup like that? Who knew they could close it out at all? Who knew they could come out on the final day Sunday with a significant three-point lead and not only hold that edge, but build on it, ultimately winning 17-11, the largest American margin of victory in 35 years. Who knew that the U.S. golfers could perform so admirably as a team when the spotlight burned the brightest? Who knew that they had this kind of killer instinct? Who knew that 4-0 start on Friday morning was a prelude and not the normal thing about losing it afterwards? You know, this is going to take some time to get used to American golf fans because the past two decades most of you have heard the words Ryder Cup and instantly recoiled in disappointment and embarrassment losing became the way of life for the greatest names in the game like Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson officially it took 2,993 days to reclaim the cup and now led by Captain America Patrick Reed who to me was the MVP and the momentum changer on Saturday, now you can almost expect the U.S. to win again, and who knew it could be on European soil. But anyway, coming in at number two, like you mentioned, Kevin, after an absence of 112 years, the game of golf returned to the Olympics in Rio. If there is something that I can talk more than Hideki Matsuyama, is the Olympics. And as that event unfolded, it was the absence of the top four male golfers in the world that seemed to be the story. When it ended, golf did just fine with those who decided to play. Addison da Silva of Brazil hit the first shot that put golf back in the Olympics for the first time in more than a century. Inby Park hit the final putt that capped off two weeks that could not have gone much better for a sport trying to make a good impression. Peter Dawson was on the first tee when it started and said he had a tear in his eye when it ended saying that it had exceeded by far his very best expectations. The sport left in Rio much in much better shape than when it arrived. The celebration of six medalists dwarfed the absentee list that included the top four men in the world, all but for thousands were the delays in getting Olympic golfers built because of the various protests and lawsuits which cost so much time that a test event of the Gilhans design could not be played until just five months before the Olympics. At an Olympics with half-filled venues, men's golf was a sellout for the final round, which featured a duel between Justin Rose of England and Henrik Stenson of Sweden. 
Not unlike this year's British Open, when Phil Mickelson had an incredible last day, only to be defeated by Stevenson, who matched him shot for shot, the Olympic gold medal came down to the last hole. Crowds were smaller for the women the following week, though it had a distinctive Olympic feel, with fans spread out across the course, easy to spot by the color of their shirts for the country they watch. As for television, NBC Sports showed the final 90 minutes of the men's golf, and it was the second highest rated window of the year behind only the Masters. Women had never had a chance, had that chance because the starting times were moved up for the final round to avoid storms and finish early. Even so, Golf Channel said women's golf recorded new benchmarks every single day. The third round brought the highest numbers for any third round in women's golf during daytime hours since 2011. In fact, many have been saying golf in the Olympics is using an excuse by saying it's trying to grow the game. So in a potentially positive note for the Grow the Gamers, NBC corralled the youngest audience for the Olympic contest, that is the adults 18 to 49, that made up 30% of the viewers since its coverage of the 2013 U.S. Open. Indeed, the viewership was younger than any than any other regular season tour event final round in the past four years. This is an in-your-face kickoff win for those defending the Grow the Game initiative of the Olympics. And speaking of in-your-face victories, Inby Park won the gold medal as she fought through injury and proved her critics wrong. The same ones that said she should have stayed home and give her space to another player that was healthy were lauding her for the incredible performance back home where she was received and revered as a national hero. The scoring record will belong to Maria Virginova, whose participation was confirmed only the day before the opening ceremony because of Russia's doping scandal. She made a hole-in-one on her way to a 62. Many athletes take, took pride in wearing their country's colors and competing for a nation rather than for themselves. The tournament had that kind of different competitive spirit than a regular PGA event, and players had three medals to shoot for, which made things more interesting on the final day. The next step now for golf is staying in the games. And executives left Rio feeling bullish about the IOC review next year for all events. Golf already was assured of being in Tokyo Games in 2020. Justin Rose, the winner of the gold medal in men, said if he could make a case for golf staying beyond Tokyo, he would say, were you in Rio? Golfers from around the world raved about the tournament Sunday during the final round of Maine's play at the Olympic golf course. Some of them were medal winners. Others were never in contention in four days. All of them said this tournament has been one of the best experiences of their lives. The women follow suit, raving about their experience, the course and the competition. Even Rory McIlroy, who said he wasn't going to watch, he admitted he watched and congratulated Justin Rose. Fred, we all know it's more complicated than that uh, to make sure that this uh, the sport of golf is going to be beyond 2020, though it will be hard to find flaws and reasons why not to keep it there. The idea was to put its best foot forward, and golf didn't trip. Yeah, I mean, you guys both know that I was not excited about the Olympics, and Carlos, you and I had some great discussions about that, and you know, I still think the tours need to sort out their schedules during Olympic years 
but the Rio Olympics were a resounding success and, and even made a believer out of me. I, I am looking forward to having all of the top players involved in Japan in, in 2020. Uh, Michael Wan has said that uh, the Olympics has sparked tremendous investment in golf uh, around the world. Uh, he's never seen anything like it. So we're down to the top of story from 2016, and it's only fitting that it goes to golf's king. On September 25th, golf lost an icon. Arnold Palmer loved golf and understood the complexity and beauty of the game that he worked to master his entire life. A famous quote attributable to him goes, golf is deceptively simple and endlessly complicated. It satisfies the soul and frustrates the intellect. It is at the same time rewarding and maddening, and it is without a doubt the greatest game mankind has ever invented. He was the king and drew his final breath in a hospital in Pittsburgh. He was scheduled to receive a heart procedure the next day, but it came too late. Palmer may have not been the best player ever, but he was by far the most important golfer in the history of the game. To say that Palmer achieved the American dream is a gross understatement. He rose from working class roots to winning major championships, leading his own army, and hobnobbing with presidents. Arnie was recognized off the golf course as well. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal. Palmer bridged the gap between Hogan, Nelson, and Sneed, bringing golf into the modern era. He made golf cool for blue-collar America, and they responded by making him their king. A cigarette dangling from his lips, a tug at the waist of his trousers, and his go-for-broke style enamored men and women alike. He won his first official PGA tournament at the 1955 Canadian Open. His final and 62nd win of his career came in the 1973 Hope Desert Classic. Along the way, he won seven major championships, including four Masters Green Jackets. Augusta National and Arnold Palmer will forever be linked in golf history. Through various endorsement agreements with Fortune 500 companies, Palmer was still annually one of the highest-grossing sports figures in America. He, along with Mark McCormick's IMG management company, set the standard for athletes' marketing strategy. Palmer's Golf Design Company was founded in 1972 and built over 300 golf courses worldwide. He was most proud of his Bay Hill Golf Club in Orlando and made it his winter residence for many years. Bay Hill also hosts the Arnold Palmer Invitational every March, a favorite among tour professionals. He was instrumental in the foundation and development of the Golf Channel. It was the first cable channel dedicated solely to covering golf and became one of the most successful cable television launches in history. Arnold even had a drink named in his honor. 
enjoyed drinking iced tea mixed with lemonade. Arizona Beverage licensed the drink named at the Arnold Palmer and marketed around the world. Perhaps the king's most important work was his philanthropic. He donated his time, money, and talents to the growth of the Arnold Palmer Medical Center. Through his efforts, the hospital offers the finest care and advanced technology in the treatment of children's health care. The AP Medical Center includes the 158-bed Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children and the 285-bed Winnie Palmer Hospital for Women and Babies. No child is refused treatment. Thousands of families have benefited and will continue to benefit from the miraculous treatment provided by the Arnold Palmer Medical Center. Arnold Palmer was a child of the Great Depression and fully understood the gifts he received throughout his lifetime. He signed every autograph with precision, met every eye with a warm, friendly wink, and greeted everyone as a long-lost friend. He achieved the American dream with charisma, style, and a strong work ethic. Guys, the king may have passed, but his legacy in golf, sports marketing, philanthropy, and sportsmanship will live forever. Kieran, your thoughts on that? Yes, I have to agree with what Fred said, and he said it so well there. And it was obviously an incredible impact that Arnold Palmer had on golf and sport and really the lives of those he connected with, even if it was just a, a handshake or an autograph or, a, or even a glance. You know, he had that way with people where they, if they encountered Arnold Palmer, they felt that they knew him, even those who didn't had that connection with him that so few in not just golf but in sport have ever really achieved. And that is an incredible thing to do in your life. And people always say that the way that... Um, the way you can define a life well lived is if you're going to be remembered fondly, and uh, Arnold Palmer will certainly be remembered fondly, not just in the United States, but around the world, and uh, for his incredible impacts on golf, sport, and people, and obviously the lives that he touched through his, through his hospitals and so on, and uh, you know that's, that's a great legacy to leave behind, and uh, certainly the players of today, I think, understand that. They've obviously had connections with him through the years at the Arnold Palmer Invitational and at the Masters. They have, a, have now the responsibility to carry on that legacy and to follow in his footsteps and to treat people as well as he did. Totally agree. And uh, definitely uh, the story of the year, the death of the king who really transcended the sport and, and really took the news, uh, the news world uh, by storm once it happened. But with that, we'll wrap up our top 10 stories of golf in, 19, in 2016. We hope you enjoyed them. Now we have a small segment where we all are going to talk about what we are looking forward more now in golf in 2016. And Kieran, you're going to have the first shot at it. Well, again, what for for a us as golf fans, people who like to study the game and to watch the game, follow the game, and really what defines success, what defines greatness, are the major championships. So I am looking forward, you know, immensely to the major championships. Obviously, you know, Augusta will be here before we know it. You know, obviously it's December right now, Christmas is coming, but in the end, it's it's always the case of the Masters comes around faster than you think it will, and uh, before long it will be spring, and we'll be going down Magnolia Lane and all the rest of it, and we'll be there to see the Masters again. And, um, again, that's obviously going to help set an act. Because, really, whatever happens before that, you know, whoever wins the, the Farmers Insurance Open, whoever wins the Dubai Desert Classic, it's great, but it doesn't really matter. What truly resonates 
as who wins the Masters, who wins the US Open, who wins the Open Championship, who wins the PGA Championship. That's what matters most of all. Yes, to a lesser extent, you had the FedEx Cup and so on, but those four events, those four majors, are what still defines greatness and success in our game. And those are always the events I look forward to most of all because they matter the most. I watch every minute of them, every shot of them, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing who can really make define those majors for themselves uh, next year. Obviously, this year we saw obviously four different winners, so really it was not really a year dominated by anybody like last year was, obviously, with Jordan Spieth winning the first two, and the year before that, Rory winning the last two. So this year, who can step up and become a dominant figure in the majors this year? It's getting harder and harder. The fields are getting deeper and stronger. There's so many great players at the top now. But all these great players are capable of separating themselves from the other ones. You know, Roy McIlroy can do it. He's looking to add to his major tally. Jordan Spieth had, overall, a very good year. Not as great as last year, but it's very hard to match that. So he will try and get back onto that level again. Dustin Johnson, obviously, now a major champion. He goes to the next, the next level. His game is surely suited to play any golf course in the world. He has all the potential right there. He could do anything. Now, obviously, we come back to that man. And Jason Day, obviously, come back to world number one. He'll be back next season as well. How he can back from injury, how he perform, he'll be back to the Tournament of Champions in Hawaii at the start of next year. So all these great stories coming in. But obviously, we come back to one guy in particular, and that's Tiger Woods. Is how is Tiger Woods going to fit in with this narrative? How is he going to fit in with all these young guys? McIlroy, Spieth, DJ, Day, Matsuyama. How is Tiger going to be in there? Is he going to be a sideshow, a distraction? Or is he actually going to get involved in the action like Phil Mickelson did this year? Even like Jim Furyk did, older guys who showed that they could still play at the highest level. Tiger obviously has so much scar tissue, so much baggage, but if you, if you if Augusta, if Tiger could get somehow within a few shots going into Sunday at Augusta, talk about ratings for the Hero World Challenge. Can you imagine the ratings for that? So I'm looking forward, most of all, as I always do, to the majors because they define the year. How about your thoughts and what are you looking forward to most in the sport of golf for next year, Fred? Well, of course, Kieran pretty much summed it up there, but I can't think about 2017 and not think about Tiger Woods. We got a little taste of what to expect at the Hero World Challenge. If his back and knees will allow him to compete, he demonstrated he still has the game to compete at the highest level with these young guys. I expect to see a better rested Jordan Speed to compete for majors, along with Dustin Johnson, Jason Day, and Rory McIlroy. The PGA Tour is deep, and anyone in the field can win on any given week. The women's game continues to grow events, purse sizes, and new exciting young talent. Can't wait to watch the LPGA Tour events next year. Bernhard Langer is a physical freak. To continue to accomplish the feats at the age of 58 or 59 is truly astonishing. Can he collect a fifth Charles Schwab Cup in 2017? I wouldn't bet against him. And I'm curious to see how the new Rolex series actually works to entice top-name talent to play in Europe. I think this is Pelly's best idea to date, and with the help of Rolex, he may just have a model for what the European Tour needs to do in the future. Most of all, I can't wait to cover all this and talk about it with you guys next year. <coughs> Excuse me. It's always a pleasure, and guys, thank you so much. Well, to me, I'm looking forward uh, to 
Uh, one thing I'm happy that, you know, golf governing bodies have responding to Dustin Johnson's penalty at the U.S. Open by introducing that local rule that will waive the one-shot penalty if the ball moves on the potting green by accident, you know, that's going to be effective in January and applies only to accidental movement on the putting green of the golf ball and marker. So hopefully they will implement for Fred's sake, the elimination of the instant replay. Uh, hopefully it would happen. I don't see it happening, but hopefully it would. But now on a more serious note, um, I look forward to seeing the majors, like uh, Kieran was saying. Uh, I think that Hideki Matsuyama has won in him. I have seen been saying that the Masters is the one for him. Uh, I would like to see uh, Tiger Woods win one more, really. I, I would like to see it. It would be great for golf, seeing him battle with the young guns and uh, that guard, and also Dustin Johnson. He's really playing out of this world right now. So it, it's going to be a great great year in men's golf and also in the women's. Lydia Ko, Adia Yutanagarn, uh, seen there also Brooke Henderson, uh, seen also Lexi, Charlie Hall, Inge Sean, but also the veterans. I know that Inge Park's not done yet. Uh, seen Shan Shan Feng is playing incredibly well. There is a lot of depth there in the ladies, and it's going to be a great, great year. Um, also, Kieran, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, noticed, but last week. Uh, we had our, our Christmas wishes, and I know that there in Scotland, uh, Christmas was banned for nearly 400 years until like the 1950s, but you celebrate it, and uh, we asked for a trip to Scotland, okay, so that we can play with you in your backyard yes. there in St. Andrews to see yes. who's the worst, the best of the worst, okay? So, <laughs> well, I, think we I, make I can guarantee it, you that the best of the worst... Uh, I don't know about you, Carlos, but I think Fred has got some games. So I think he'd win. Yeah, it'll it'll be him, but then the the, the battle for second will be between you and me. Oh, so, well, that battle uh, for second. If people thought reading Spieth was good or or reading McElroy or Phil and Henrik, you know, me and Carlos, that would be one hell of a battle around the old course. Yeah, we will be going backwards, counting... <laughs> towards 100 <laughs> that would be something to see you could buy a ticket for that yes, yeah, we, will, we will transmit it live via Twitter, YouTube, whatever we can find uh, there will be nobody watching, we know that but hey, we'll enjoy it if that happens but anyway, any final words uh, Kieran before we close well, just thank you for having me on the show again. It's always a pleasure to come on and do it. Last time I was on, I think it was just before the Ryder Cup, so it's been a, a two or three months or so, so it's always fun to come on and talk about the, the game with you guys. Obviously, it's been a great year for golf and uh, a momentous year in so many ways, as we've covered tonight. So many great stories. Obviously, we could really have made the list 20, I think, this year. There have been so many things to talk about. And uh, so, obviously, you know, fun to be on the show as always. I hope people have enjoyed it, and uh, I wish you guys a very happy holiday season coming up, and I hope you have a, a really good start to next year. And we wish you the same. Fred, any any final words before we close the show? No, and you can just see that the, the stories that we talked about first that made the honorable mention that didn't even make the top ten, that just what a phenomenal year, the Olympics, the Ryder Cup, the Open Championship, on and on and on and on. Just, you know, what a what a great, great year in golf. And, and I have to say, guys, for me personally, um, I got to attend three of the majors this year, plus the Ryder Cup, as well as some other uh, some other events. And 
So it's been a really outstanding year for me. It's been a banner year, and, and uh, I just love writing and talking about golf, and, and uh, especially when we get together with you, Carlos, every week, and, and Kieran, when uh, when you come on and, t- and join us. It's always a pleasure and enjoy it a lot. Thanks, guys. Well, back Niners, that will wrap up another year, the year of 2016 on the Back Nine Report presented by eDraft.com. We thank you for listening. It's always our pleasure to bring you the latest on the world of golf, in this case, the best of the year 2016 in the world of golf. Special thanks to you, Kieran, as usual. Excellent. Uh, you always uh, give me a good lesson of how to do the show. So great. Thank you. <laughs> For your great knowledge and your insight, uh, it's it's a pleasure to to have you every time you come to us. Uh, don't forget to join us. Our next show would be at, as usual on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time, but it would be on January the third here on Block Talk Radio. If you miss any of our shows, especially this one, check it out on iTunes or TuneIn. And if you haven't done so, follow the show on Twitter. Our ID is at Back Nine Report. My name is Carlos Torres, along with Kieran Clark and Fred Alvader. And in the words of the immortal Ben Hogan, as you walk down the fairway of life, you, you must smell the roses, for you only get one, play, one round to play. That is why we always end up our show wishing you to be happy, be blessed, and enjoy the great game of golf. Happy golfing, everybody. Good night, everybody. Cheers.